This is Health Yeah, your weekly update on what's going on in the health, wellness, and medical world with Monica Robbins. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Health Yeah, your prescription for common sense, medical health, and wellness information. I'm Monica Robbins. Today, we are talking about the opioid epidemic and how the pandemic is impacting those battling substance use disorders. A new CDC report just released finds that the number of overdose deaths has now reached 100,000. That is the largest single year toll ever recorded. The study looked at deaths from April of 2020. That was the beginning of the pandemic, if you'll recall, until April of 2021. Ohio, of course, is no stranger to the opioid epidemic and in past years has been one of the leading states for drug overdose deaths in the nation. Experts say the current overdose deaths are largely from fentanyl and meth and cocaine. Ohio saw a near 27% increase in overdose deaths over that time that the CDC was looking at from 19 to 20. The state recently started a Beat the Stigma education and marketing campaign. And Ohio earlier this year received $24 million from the recent opioid settlement from one drug company, but may be receiving more from other lawsuits still pending. But what will it take to get control of a problem that seems to once again be spiraling out of control? To help sort through it, I gathered experts in the field. Jason Joyce is the executive director of the Hitchcock Center for Women. He's also a licensed clinical counselor and an independent chemical dependency counselor. Tom Stuber is the president and chief legislative officer of the Lakota Way and adjunct professor of addiction counseling at LCCC. And Tom recently retired as CEO of the Lakota Way after leading that organization for 21 years. Pam Boyer is is the clinical director of the Women's Recovery Center. And John Lissy is the executive director of the Shaker Heights Youth Center. Thank you all so much for joining me in this very important conversation. Did you notice any changes in the treatment population before and after the pandemic began? Before the pandemic, um, our agency usually... um, Uh, Our population comes from uh, people that are mandated by either the courts or children and family services. But now uh, we're seeing a lot of self-referrals more than ever. Um, I've been at the agency for 20 years and I've never seen, um, at our agency anyway, um, a lot of self-referrals. And also uh, after the pandemic, I've noticed a difference and uh, there's more diversity in the social economic status. So we're seeing a lot of women with less barriers, they're more educated, having higher incomes. We're also seeing like a change in the age groups. Pre-pandemic, our age groups were like in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. And now we're seeing uh, people come to treatment in their 50s, 60s, and we even had a 75-year-old. And also we're seeing a change Um, in the drugs of abuse. Um, We always had, you know, your, you know, marijuana, alcohol, uh, pre-pandemic opiate abuse. Um, We're seeing more opiate abuse, but we're also now seeing methamphetamine use. Monica, I think that one of the things that we're seeing is simply the consequence of the isolation that's occurred as a result of the Mm -hmm. pandemic. We're seeing a lot of individuals come in with significant amount of anxiety and depression 
that has occurred because they've been isolated for this period of time and living under a significant amount of uh, fear or threat of possibly uh, catching the uh, COVID. And so I think that has changed the profile somewhat of those seeking treatment now. Um, but we are seeing a surge of people seeking our care uh, that we haven't seen for quite a while. And I think part of that is because people have been hunkering down to try to get through the COVID. Pam, have you asked any of the folks who are coming in, are, are any of them first time users or is this um, something that like, especially with the older population that maybe they had dealt with substance use disorder when they were younger and then because of the pandemic, you know, fell off the proverbial wagon, if you will? Yes, um, I, we do have a lot of first time um, uh, clients who, well, I'm not going to say they're first time because they've used in the past, but their drinking or their usage did become more prob problematic during the pandemic when they were isolated and stuck in the house. And um, a lot of them, especially the older, were, you know, were dealing with a lot of, uh, you know, medical issues and were prescribed pain medications and they couldn't afford it. And, you know, then they went to other, went to the illicit drug use. John, you, you see typically uh, a younger clientele. So can you talk about how the pandemic impacted youth seen by your prevention providers? Sure, yeah, prevention uh, serves a, a large segment of, of youth ranging from a kind of a universal population uh, to those who are struggling but not in need of treatment uh, services and really Almost all the youth that we've been, been in contact with have been impacted by COVID. And we're just beginning to see that impact of trauma. Um, the youth have lost in-person education for long periods of time, and that's disrupted their learning um, and, and isolated them. There's been like examples of, of Violence in like Bedford schools and Akron schools that's, that have made the news. And I think a lot of that is uh, pandemic related. Uh, the school disruption, the pandemic fears, and, and really the extreme polarization of, of our country, I think uh, all uh, contribute to that. Uh, so we're seeing a lot of kids who are showing their trauma and then there's a lot of kids who don't show uh, that they've been impacted, can quietly go about their business, but all of them really need support to build resiliency uh, and to, to cope with the many stressors they've had. Uh, so we, we kind of come from a wellness philosophy, identifying strengths and, and uh, viewing uh, youth as a work in progress and not as an individual with a problem. Uh, so our goal really is to build resiliency by building relationships with caring adults and providing support and, and uh, teaching life skills and how to deal with stress and, and uh, those sorts of things. Jason, let me move on to you. The state of Ohio just started the Beat the Stigma campaign. Um, and one of the issues, even though we have a lot of new people because of the isolation, because of the other issues who may be um, now dealing with a lot of these, uh, these problems, Talk to me about what is the biggest misconception of addiction or mental health disorders? 
That's a great question. And, and I think just even a little background on, on the stigma piece. So according to the Surgeon General, around 21 million uh, people uh, age 12 and older have some sort of substance use uh, disorder. Um, out of that 21 million, only around 10% get treatment. So the vast majority do not get treatment because of that stigma. So I think fighting that stigma is huge. Uh, and it just to even equate it to pure numbers, right? So 21 million, obviously a lot of people, sounds like a lot of people, right? But to equate that to another diagnosis of very similar to the same rates as diabetes, right? So certainly diabetes seems very common. You know, people know each other who have it. You hear about it quite a bit. So that's sort of the, the prevalence rates of substance use, right? So when we're talking about stigma, you know, that is the core reason why people don't do it. And, and a lot of it is misconceptions, right? So that, you know, when, when we think of what is addiction, you know, what is addiction? You know, kind of a general question, right? So, you know, it's a repetitive drug-seeking behavior. And a lot of people think that it starts off as like, you know, it's their choice. They're using, they're, that's their choice to use. And maybe somewhat, maybe the first time that they use, but by the time they're in the throes of addiction, it's no longer a choice. And that's really what we talk about when we say addiction is a disease. That, you know, at some point it no longer becomes uh, a choice. And I think really kind of, having people understand that, getting out there and advocating for that, you know, helping others to kind of get a good understanding of what substance use is will help uh, the community at large treat this, this large scale issue. Yeah, one of the biggest issues, and I was very happy to hear, Pam, that you said you have a lot of self-referrals because one thing that stigma tends to do is prevents people from seeking the help that they need. Yes, I think it is a good sign um, that people, you know, I know the women, they, they're coming, they want help. Um, you know, these women are coming, they're talking about, you know, how traumatized they were um, and they just want help uh, and they want to um, have better relationships with their families and their children. And, you know, so yeah, we are, we are, you know, very, very, happy to see a, a surge in, you know, self-referrals. COVID shutdown had a significant impact on access to care. So what procedural changes did Lakata have to make to deal with that? Well, in early 2020, uh, with the, which was the onset of the pandemic, our first concerns were how do we keep our customers and our staff safe? So we, in residential treatment, we had 12 residents and that was already a reduced capacity due to the pandemic. Uh, but we also had between 160 and 180 active customers in treatment receiving care at that time. So we implemented a number of protocols. We suspended outside visitors. We suspended home-based services. Um, and this is when we first implemented telehealth and telephone services. We suspended internship placements through the colleges, although that was reinstated once we went to telehealth. Uh, we implemented reception and front desk check-ins, including temperature checks and CDC uh, questionnaire, mandated masks, social distancing, and implemented a sanitation schedule where every one of our facilities was sanitized three to four times a day. And we used our transportation staff to be able to do that. And we had to adjust our human resource policies to accommodate those staff who came down with symptoms of addiction. Um, and then March 16th that year, we sent out press releases, customer and referral source emails, social media announcements, and changed our website to inform the community that we were still providing services, 
that telehealth was available for some of our services and that we had implemented all kinds of COVID protection procedures to ensure that we could keep them safe. We uh, then had to implement a work plan where we took and reviewed every one of our staff and those that could work from home were going to be working from home, which meant we had to establish home work offices, um, which were equipped with the technology necessary for them to deliver care. And at that point, we ended up purchasing 35 computers to be able to set up our, our clinical staff with uh, the ability to provide telehealth. Well, at this point, we're still uh, utilizing all of the telehealth services as available. We have started some on-site uh, group counseling again and intensive outpatient treatment for those that have been vaccinated and are able to come and participate. But we still uh, utilize full masks, uh, social distancing, um, and have limited the amount of services that are provided on site. Give me the pros and cons of, of telehealth with the Women's Recovery Center. How has it been, how has it been utilized and, and what impact have you seen? Some didn't have computers, some didn't have, you know, smartphones, um, you know, to receive the services. And then if they did have, uh, you know, smartphones or computers, they didn't have sufficient enough data plans. Um, and then we went in, we, you know, we kind of ran into other issues, um, uh, some technical difficulties with, you know, um, you know, losing the connection. We tried to create the environment of having group therapy, you know, online. Um, so that was, that was a challenge. Um, and then there was the challenge of, you know, HIPAA and confidentiality. So we constantly had to, you know, tell the clients that they need to go find a private space. As a clinician, it was difficult for us to express warmth or empathy. Um, you know, it's difficult to do those things virtually. So sometimes your virtual based conversations, you know, may lead to miscommunications and, you know, clients were upset, you know, turn off their cameras and things of that nature. So those were some of the, the major difficulties in the beginning that our agency had to deal with. But we implemented um, some rules and enforced some rules, you know, eventually that the that, you know, the clients got used to. John, how about you? How did you uh, implement telehealth and, and do you what were the pros and cons from your perspective? From a prevention perspective, especially working with the little ones, trying to engage a, a kindergartner or first grader on the telephone and, and uh, keep their attention for longer than five minutes was a very, very difficult task. Uh, you know, with, with the little ones, usually if we're meeting with them at school, we're playing a game with them or doing something like that to, to engage them so that they feel comfortable and are able to talk. That was that was a real challenge. Uh, the other challenge is that we we actually ended up doing a lot of in person because uh, the the children were out of school and there were just some some children who absolutely could not function at home academically. They were never on their their uh, tablets and and not doing the work. So we actually implemented learning pods uh, in. Uh, uh, for uh, each of the segments of the Shaker schools so that some of those children were able to, to do some academic pieces. Uh, the other thing that we did was kind of pivot towards serving the community. So 
because so many people were in stress just around things like housing and food, uh, we really got involved with other community partners to uh, to make sure that their food was being delivered to folks and we were um, getting donations and and uh, and uh, getting those donations to people who needed it. So it changed kind of what we were doing and and uh, uh, but we felt fortunate that we were still able to serve the community. Now that we're past it, Tom and John and Pam, I'm curious to know, is telehealth still going to be, you know, a regular part of your treatment process these days? Absolutely. Um, what we've done is, Lakata has been providing telehealth services since 2009, um, but this tool had limited utilization based on uh, many of the restrictions that have been imposed under rule primarily the requirement that the customer have face-to-face -face meetings prior to implementing telehealth services. Uh, the obstacles that made telehealth necessary, um, meaning people couldn't access care, were keeping it from being effective. The COVID-19 pandemic and the loosening of restrictions have led to full utilization and significant learning about the true benefits of telehealth. Engagement and access to care are critical beginnings to successful outcomes. So the Lakata Way has been offering and will continue to offer telehealth services, both in terms of medical, including medication-assisted treatment, uh, counseling, including group, individual, and family therapy, psychoeducation, and also assessment. And because there had not been a lot of research done on the effectiveness of telehealth, we decided we were going to track our own and both in terms of engagement and reliability, as well as customer satisfaction. JAMA just last week came out with a study that did indicate that telehealth is uh, very effective for certain populations. Children were not one of those populations and seniors who are not technologically uh, comfortable with one of the populations that it didn't. But that uh, 18 to 64 age group seem to do very well with telemedicine. Um, that telehealth also helped you expand your reach. Right now we have clients in Ashtabula County. Um, I think that's the furthest, um, but like they had some clients who moved um, and wanted to continue services. So um, Stark County, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's been wonderful in that regard, being able to, you know, have them still continue their treatment at the place that where they, you know, wanted to get treatment. I think telehealth services are here to stay. Um, we're operating in a hybrid format right now. So some of the ladies are on site and some of them are, you know, virtual. Um, and it helps, you know, with the barriers of getting to treatment. Um, there's still some uh, women at home who are still taking care of children who don't have childcare. And so it still allows them to come to treatment. All right, let me throw uh, another topic out at you all. Um, Cuyahoga County was actually starting to see a downward trend in overdose deaths a few years ago after a record year in 2017 with 727 deaths. Now it's looking like we may surpass that record number this year. Why do you think that is and what do you think needs to be done about it? Jason, I'll start with you. You know, when you talk about treatment, you know, there's no one size fits all, but there are some certain themes that we know that are helpful. Right. And the number one on that list is access. So if you start to remove access to treatment, you're going to likely see an increase. And obviously, the pandemic 
uh, reduce access to treatment across the board, not only for substance use related treatment, but all treatment. Um, so I would say that is the, the number one contributing factor uh, in terms of why you've seen such an increase. And then also the, the other factors of people are at home more, maybe they lost their job, maybe they were bored, that's gonna be more likely uh, to, uh, to use substances because the main reason that they, the people use substances is usually to try to fix something else that's going on in their life. You know, whether that's they're stressed or anxious or uh, bored or they wanna please somebody else, whatever it is, that substance is usually, at least when it starts, is trying to fill that role. And then as I talked about before, it, it leads to addiction, which then uh, is harder to stop. Um, looking forward to the future, you know, where we, where we need it right now uh, is two main areas. So one, uh, with our workforce. Um, much like other workforce, they have been ravaged uh, in terms of uh, either with, you know, afraid to work with COVID, chose another profession, uh, having graduated maybe as many from the schools, uh, we're certainly seeing a reduction across the board in workforce uh, and people willing to work in the field. And the second one is infrastructure. As you see more complexity, whether it's with telehealth or how we deliver our services, you need more funds for infrastructure to be able to build and reach the people that you're looking out to. John, what do you think? I, I think another aspect of the increase in death is really uh, the difficulty connecting with ongoing community support groups like AA or NA. Um, for a while, almost all meetings were virtual. And, and I think for many people that was interesting at the beginning, but those personal relationships, uh, I think are what help keep people sober. Uh, and that includes things like being in church or, or other kinds of supports. And and without ongoing community support, I think it's very difficult for people who are addicted to chemicals to stay sober. From my perspective, well, we we just recently started a, a, a trauma group, um, and so from the from the ladies who have been attending our trauma groups, they were you know they're stating they're sharing that you know being at home isolated and things like that. They were like into their thoughts and, you know, having flashbacks and, you know, just thinking about all the things that have happened to them. And so it kind of, you know, made them want to self-medicate more. Um, but I would like to see, you know, um, uh, more, you know, women's treatment um, specifically. Uh, we're seeing the overdose deaths increase and the overdoses overall increase. Uh, significantly. Um, and I think the reason is that we are actually in the fourth phase of the opiate epidemic. We started with narcotics or pharmaceutical uh, opiates. We then went to heroin. We went then went to fentanyl. And now we're finding fentanyl mixed with uh, psychostimulants. And with each phase, we found that the individual being treated has been more difficult to treat that the addictions become stronger and uh, more, more controlling. And going back to what Jason said, um, Jason helped the Ohio Alliance of Recovery Providers complete a survey of uh, agencies. And what we found is that all of the agencies in OARP have significant uh, work shortages, ranging from four to one organization that had 100 clinical staff that were positions that were vacant. And that we found that there were uh, on average four months to fill a position. 
Well, if you've got somebody that uh, a position that's open, a clinical position, that's 12 individuals that are not going to be received treatment that day. The addiction field with the primary reimbursement, reimbursement being Medicaid, we have not seen a significant increase in rates since 2004. And if, uh, if you were uh, trying to run your household with the same money you were making in 2004, you would have a difficult position too. If you uh, were the one who had the checkbook, Jason, I'll start with you. Where does the money have to go? I, I think it goes to coordination uh, of services. Um, I, I think, you know, obviously, you know, with, with workforce, but I think even more specifically with coordination of services. So we've, we've seen some of this money at use in Cuyahoga County with the diversion center. And I know they're kind of going through the process and making sure that uh, it gets set up the way that they want it to get set up. And, you know, there's been some hurdles there, but I, I'm, I'm confident that they'll get through them. But I think that's where the money is going to be most impactful. When you're looking at something that can not only touch one population or one, you know, one person, something that can help coordinate across the whole system. Uh, the ideal would be something that would help coordinate more effectively uh, through people's levels of care so that they could have tight coordination with um, all the services they receive, whether it's you know, primary care or uh, specialty care, but right down to substance use that it's really valued and looked at everywhere across that continuum. Education is such an important part of that. About 60% of the addiction workforce doesn't have a degree in, in or an advanced degree in addiction. So even getting uh, the workforce more educated and then bringing people in. And, and I think we do a great job actually at the associates level of teaching addiction services. So putting some money into uh, uh, educating the workforce, uh, doing some stipends for them because most of the people who are uh, CDCA's chemical dependency counselor assistants don't make too much money, um, but really incentivizing their education and, and getting them to uh, to uh, get uh, at least a degree and then um, looking at what we can do to increase uh, education on the bachelor's and master's level, as well as the PhD level would be huge. Tom? I know you have like a, a top ten list. I'm sure. So uh, where would you where would you start? Same with education and getting more people in the workforce. Or if there was something immediate, what would you do with it? The first thing that I think that is absolutely essential, as we are setting up the uh, One Ohio Foundation, is that we put the money or we use the money in a way that is sustainable. To do one-time projects that will start a program but not have continuous funding to keep that program going means that we're gonna hit a wall down the road. And then on top of that, we need to find a way to entice people to come back into this field. And that when they look at the economics, um, it's not a very enticeful thing. Many people will enter this field because they wanna help, which is wonderful, but then, Nobody wants to go and end up not being able to adequately support my family. John, talk about the legislative efforts that have been put forth to deal with this crisis. There's been funding that's come down to, uh, to in prevention to with the social emotional services for, for youth. Also funding come down for, for treatment. 
the loosening of the telehealth uh, rules have, have really saved many, many lives, I believe. Uh, and then, you know, looking at overdose prevention strategies, and I think that's coming down on a federal level, but looking at, at not only uh, the naloxone and, and fentanyl strips, needle exchange, those sorts of things. People, you know, obviously we're in the business of treatment, but people have to come to treatment if they're alive and if they're dead, they, they are no longer going to be coming in our door. So we have to look at ways of, of keeping people alive and, and, and then nudging them to treatment. And I think some of the uh, uh, initiatives have helped with that. Uh, uh, you know, we, we've looked at the increase in addiction workforce and, and we've studied it in OMAS, the Ohio Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services have done some studies, but uh, we really haven't implemented. So I think we have to build on the studies and, and implement. I think also the increase in recovery support has been something that's been, been funded and has been organized. So uh, I think probably all of the agencies that do treatment have now peer, uh, peer support. And, and I think that's an important piece that's been implemented. Thank you all so much for being part of this incredibly important conversation. And uh, hopefully we will see a turn in, in what we're seeing right now. Please find me on Twitter and Instagram at Monica Robbins. Like and follow my Facebook page, Monica Robbins WKYC. Subscribe and find video podcasts on my YouTube channel, Monica Robbins. Until next time, have a healthy week. Thanks for listening to Health Yeah! with Monica Robbins from WKYC Studios. Subscribe now so you never miss an update. And find more on everything you heard here on WKYC.com and on the WKYC app.